Welcome to the Novice Nurse Podcast, where I'll be talking with new and seasoned nurses about the transitions, challenges, and successes of being a registered nurse. I'm your host, Amanda Addis, professor at Mid-American Nazarene University and a nurse for the last 14 years. Today, we have registered nurse Shannon Rink on the podcast to talk to us about communication. I'm super excited for you guys to hear from her. She's a travel nurse for the last five years, and she just returned from assignment from New York on a COVID unit. Let's go ahead and get started. Thanks so much for doing this. And You're welcome. I am really horrible at these FaceTime Zoom things, so... Well, it's just a conversation. It's not, I mean, you can kind of like just pretend like you're on the phone, you know, so if you want to share with me a little bit about why you became a nurse and kind of what your nursing career has looked like so far, uh, it's really super helpful for the students to know who they're listening to. I became a nurse pretty much because I was a young mom. I was working in the correctional field for six years and I thought that I wanted to be a police officer. And then I had my daughter and decided that that was not a safe way to raise her. So I was looking for stability at the time. I knew nurses at the time, I I wouldn't be without a job. I wouldn't be without health care or anything like that. So I would say that I became a nurse for the stability of it. I wasn't one of those people that always wanted to be a nurse by any means. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it did turn out that I, I loved nursing. I still love nursing. I guess that's about it. Well, good. So you started, you went to an associate's degree program. I did. Yeah. So I started at Labette Community College with you as my teacher. (laughs) Um, What, nine years ago? I graduated in 2011. You were actually my advanced, uh, I don't know what you're teaching now, but you're my advanced teacher. Yeah, for advanced med search. So right now I just do clinical coordinating. And I'm teaching a course called internship where they were supposed to get 168 hours out in clinical, but we can't Uh do clinical right now. We're ready for COVID to kind of kick rocks. And I am too, because that's affected my schooling as well. I started at Labette Community College. Mm -hmm. I did the LPN where you can get your LPN after a year. So I did that. I worked at Parsons State uh, Mental Hospital and I worked there for actually two years, even after I graduated nursing mm-hmm. school. I stay, I love that job. So I stayed there for a year, even afterwards. I was one of those people that you probably hated uh, because I graduated nursing school in 2011 and it took me 11 months to take boards. Wow. Why, why uh, the 11 months? Just you were scared or? Yes. Yeah, so I, I even did another class with you over a summer, I believe. I think it was eight ATI class. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember that. Yeah. Uh, but I was just convinced that I wouldn't pass. And it was looking back on it, it was probably the dumbest decision I had ever made. And I let fear control that. But <laughs> so you would tell I, them, get done with school, go take boards. Yes. Don't wait. <laughs> get done with school and go take boards. I don't recommend waiting 11 months by any means. But I also loved my job at the mental hospital there in Parsons. So I was happy. So I didn't yeah. see a need either. But anyways, I then waited five years. I, I went straight into critical care. Um, after I got my RN, I applied for jobs at Freeman. 
and critical care is where I went. And I've been a critical care nurse now for eight years. Then five years later, I went and got my bachelor's degree because I had had enough of critical care and I didn't know what else to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I got my bachelor's degree through Oklahoma Westland all online in 18 months. And then I waited less than a year and now I'm working on my master's degree. And my master's degree will actually be a mental health nurse practitioner. That's good. And I only have I only have a year left of that. And thinking about the course of my nursing career, I loved the Parsons State Hospital. I would love the opportunity to go back. I don't know. I'm not sure exactly what I'll do for work when I get my nurse practitioner, but well, it's a huge need out there to have nurse practitioners and mental health. So there'll be a lot of opportunities. Right. You recently took, um, you've been traveling a little bit, right? With your nursing career. Yeah, I've traveled nurse for the last five years. And I actually love the opportunity of travel nursing. It's actually worked well for my family. I know some that have a family life, it doesn't work as well for them, but I'm blended. Our family's blended, so it's worked well. But I travel nurse mostly to Kansas City. And I've worked in probably five different hospitals there in Kansas City. But I've also, I also, my first travel assignment was Knoxville, Tennessee. And this most recent travel assignment was New York during the pandemic, COVID pandemic. Well, I'm sure our students are pretty interested in what that looked like. What was kind of the most shock, I mean, maybe not the most shocking parts of that, but kind of a quick rundown of what your daily job looked like there. I did eight weeks in New York City. Well, I shouldn't say New York City. I was actually Long Island at Winthrop Hospital, which is a 590-bed unit. And when I arrived, there was 470 COVID-positive patients, and that was confirmed COVID-positive. Initially, it was scary for sure. Uh, you know, as a as a nurse, you don't ever really know what you're walking into. Even on a daily basis of going to work, you don't know what you're going to see. You don't know what you're going to get. But crisis nursing is a whole different level of nursing. It's pretty much you take the blows as they hit you and and you just keep moving. New York was sick. Um, It got better throughout the eight weeks, but daily it was probably, you know, as a critical care nurse, probably the saddest time of the history of my career thus far. I think a lot of ethics played into it and not that it was unethical what we were doing, but you're trained as a nurse um, how to do things a certain way. And a lot of that was pushed out the door and the primary goal was just to keep the patient alive. Yeah. A lot of what I seen, you know, there was a lot of death. My first day in New York, uh, there was 790 deaths in New York, but you were using so many supplies and very limited on resources that everything, nothing was locked up. Everything was out. So that played, played on my ethics a lot. You know, medications weren't locked up. We were using fentanyl and Dilaudid, like it was going out of style to keep the patients sedated. So those weren't locked up. The patients were extremely sick, paralyzing them so that the ventilator could work fully mm-hmm. on their lungs. And, you know, I, I don't really, I really don't know how to explain it other than just picturing probably the worst of the worst and realizing that's what New York was. It got better over time. I hit week four and it seemed like everything was, had pretty much calmed down. And then we were dealing with the anoxic injuries of respiratory failure. 
where the patients, you know, COVID had attacked their respiratory system and they'd went without oxygen for too long. Either they stayed at home too long or we didn't have the resources and now we're dealing with their brain injuries because of it. Did you have just one patient you were responsible for, two, lots more, a team, so, a team for the whole unit? So the first few weeks, it was more of a team approach. We were assigned two patients. It wasn't something you could walk away from. These patients were very fragile. Anytime anybody was tanking, it was a team approach. All the nurses ended up over that patient. Along with physicians, I worked with a lot of medical students that were learning as well. First few weeks were definitely touch and go. Uh, we were you know, really struggling to keep people alive. Two to three patients is what we had. And sometimes you would take that third or fourth patient just to help a nurse out that was struggling herself. Yeah. You know, either mentally or emotionally after and I'm sure that went both ways. You know, I'm sure there were times you were like, I need help. Just that right. camaraderie and that teamwork of everybody coming together for that primary purpose of almost just staying afloat, you know. Right. Is right. Amazing to see. Right. Although lots of sadness and sickness and stuff mixed in, which Right, exactly. Makes it, I'm sure, really hard to even, even though you've been back for a while, to kind of process through what you've seen and what you've experienced, you know, through that eight weeks that you were there. Right. One of the things that I kind of wondered about were the safety of the nurses, because, you know, we heard a lot about a shortage of PPE, which that's really easy to anticipate. We were going to have a shortage. Did you always feel safe? Did you feel protected? You know, uh, no, I, I can't say that I did. We wore our N95s for sometimes a week and a half at a time. Uh, it wasn't long though. I mean, I was probably the first few weeks, the resources were limited. We were struggling to get, since we were kind of an outlying hospital, the inner city got the majority of the uh, resources that the government was supplying. Mm -hmm. So we kind of trickled down to us. So we were kind of the last to get the supplies we needed. We reused our masks. You know, everybody was upset about that. And we reused our gowns at some, some points we were washing them as we stepped out, um, after we dawned and doffed. Yeah. Um, You doff and then you wash and then. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> and sometimes before you dawn, you wash again because you see that you missed something. But no, it wasn't safe for the nursing nurses at all. But we were kind of told that before we went into it that, you know, this isn't going to be, you know, are are you willing because this is what it is. Yeah, um, you would have a higher risk of getting COVID. Of infection. And, yeah. 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 So for for probably the first two or three weeks, I felt like, oh, my gosh you know, I'm setting myself up for failure. You know, am I going to go get to go back home? Am I going to see my family? Am I going to be one of these nurses that I see on TV that's, that's gotten sick? I actually had my antibodies tested and I was tested for COVID um, and it was negative. I never contracted COVID. I don't know what I did right or, or what, but I, I was one of the lucky ones, I guess. And you got to come home and quarantine for a while and did you quarantine with your family or did you decide to quarantine? So, I did a COVID-19 test while I was in New York before I flew home. That was negative. I found out the day I flew home and then I waited 
five days before I got the results of my second COVID test before I came back home to be with my family. Uh, and then I did five days or then I was here for two weeks with my family before I started like really getting into public. And I, I still, right now, I still won't gather in a large group. I still stay, I still keep my distance from people. And I don't think it's because I think I'm going to infect somebody. I think it's more of, I don't think it's the right thing to do right now is to gather in a large group. Yeah. I don't think it's smart. And so, so for right now, if you have to go to the store, you just go, you wear a mask. Is that kind of like your primary? Right. And to be honest with you, I haven't, I've been to the store one time, but I still try to stay away from public places. <laughs> Even um, if it's not a gathering. My kid. Yeah. yeah. So I went one time uh, to Walmart and I bought, you know, groceries to last a month. My, my husband thought I was weird. I, I just try to avoid it as much as I can. Now my kids are playing ball, softball and baseball, which I think being outside is actually a good thing. One of the things that was recognized that I kind of taken to heart with COVID was many of the deaths and many of those that got really critically ill were deficient on vitamin D, D3. Mm. which is sunlight. So I think it's important to get out and get in the sun. I take, you know, when, when I was in New York and I started researching that, I started taking vitamin D3 while I was there. Now, is it the cure-all or, or is it going to keep people? No, I don't think, I don't think that, but I think it's important to recognize that, that when you see a pattern, mm -hmm. just to take those precautions to protect yourself. Right. Well, I appreciate you telling me about your experience with New York and COVID, and I'm sure you have stories that would go on for weeks, right. but we, right. definitely, we don't have time for that, unfortunately, but I'm sure the students would love to hear all about that. Our main topic for today is looking at communication, and I think from your perspective and being in lots of different hospitals and lots of different types of intensive care units, I think it's going to give you a unique perspective on how different places do it. What right. works, what doesn't work. When I think of communication, one of the most important things I think of is that handoff report. Right. So have you ever been in a situation where you got a really, really terrible handoff report from the nurse before you? Oh, yeah. Um. <laughs> Can you share um, with me like what one of those looked like and how you handled that situation? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, in, for instance, in New York, we were literally handing off, just keep them alive. So that was pretty terrible. Yeah. But that was literally our handoff while I was in New York. I think in handoff reports, I think the key is not to get frustrated because I think that's where nurses fail is when they get frustrated, especially with our new nurses. They, they tend to get flustered and frustrated, and that's when you miss things. I think the importance of handoff is keeping it a good flow, but I've had several instances, and not all from new nurses, but when you kind of bounce all over the place, I've, I've had instances where things get missed, like history of if they've had an old CVA, uh, especially in the ICU when they're in intubated. If, if you don't know that they've had an old stroke and they're weak, weaker on the right side than the left side, 
and, and we don't find that out in handoff report. And then when we go into assess and we find that out, then we're doing unnecessary CTs or maybe even an MRI on a patient when there's no real change. Yeah. When that. there's no real change. Right. You know, missing things like drips and drip rates, the importance of drugs that are going into the patient. I've had a lot of experience in the ICUs where it, if you don't give a good handoff, it could be detrimental to the patient's care yeah. and it could cause a life-threatening injury if, if the report's not good. You've been in several different hospitals working as you've traveled. Have you found something, and maybe you found this before you started traveling, but a report that works really well for you? I've always used an SBAR. But now, you know, I've been a nurse for eight years. I have my own and the way my brain works, I write my own SBAR out before I even start report. But I recommend always using an SBAR. And I think SBARs make the flow go a lot better. I don't recommend just writing everything as somebody says it. Some nurses you'll see will just write things down as you say them, where if you put like, neuro CV for cardiovascular palm, uh, GIGU skin and IV, um, it keeps the flow going. And then when a doctor asks you, or you're giving a handoff to a sur uh, surgery or OR, they're going to ask you where their IV is. You can go to that section of your report and just see it where if you're writing down and you're going to, it's just going to be random. Right. And I've seen a lot of nurses do that. I'm not one that corrects nurses because everybody has their own flow and how they remember things. SBAR and doing report at bedside. I know a lot of nurses dislike that. It's kind of the new and upcoming thing probably about five years ago where they demanded that we do report at bedside, but report at bedside is very important, especially in a critical care setting. Just because you can see the drip rates as they're talking, you can see the ventilator as they're talking, you can see the patient, are they struggling? Do we need to give them pain medicine right there? You know, are they dirty? Do we need to clean them up right there? Uh, report at bedside is, is crucial, I think. I love to see two nurses in giving a report and you can see one talking and giving report and the other one is just verifying everything. So they right. may say like, we have this drip going at this rate and you see the other nurse just like reach for the bag, look at the bag, follow it down, look at the rate, follow it all the way down, look at the right, you know, site. And I just feel like how great is that for our patients when we have two nurses that can work together and give that really good handoff report, especially when things can change so quickly with your critically ill patients. Right. So you've seen a lot of change in how report, all sorts of communication, because in the last 10 years, things have changed a lot. When I first started, all of the doctor's orders were handwritten. Right. And then Me they too. gave them to the ward secretary to put in the computer. And you're left to not a nurse, you know, interpreting what's written and putting those orders in. The nurse would then verify it. I love now that the providers just put it straight into the computer. Right. I feel like that's really gotten rid of a big a area of concern. Right. What about like verbal orders? Do you still get a lot of those from your physicians or do they tell you and then they say, I'll go, I'll go put that in or. Oh yeah. We still do a lot of verbal orders. And the important thing is to read back 
you know, even though they're walking away, you know, slow things down because patients are at risk. It's important to, to take time and slow things down and have them repeat it if you need to. Yeah, we still do a lot of verbal orders. Now, like New York, they didn't allow verbal orders, period. The doctors had to put them in. So depending on where you work, uh, it may be different. The doctors may have to put them in, which I, I think is best practice. But still, as a nurse, you're going to, you're going to, if you question something, you're going to want to actually ask about it because there's been several times when an order's put in, you know, maybe at a different drip rate than you're used to. It's, it's okay to ask. Yeah. And I'm sure you've run into physicians that are really grateful that you've asked or providers. And then you right. run into others that are like, well, that's how I wrote the order. <laughs> right. Well, and that's changed over time too. I don't know if you've realized it, but physicians yeah. are more gracious than they used to be. Yeah. You know, they're a lot more easygoing than they used to be. You know, when we're thinking about all different types of forms of communication, maybe how you communicate nurse to nurse if you need something or nurse to provider, what are some of the best forms of communication that you have used within the hospitals you've been in? I think nurse to nurse communication is just be kind and understanding, but be straightforward. Be straightforward with what you need, but also, you know, understand that everybody's human. Nurse to physicians, physicians want to know, they, they want to know what you want. They don't, you know, they don't want a background story of how you feel about the patient or a lot of details. They just want to know what you want. And they're okay with hearing, you know, what you think might be the answer to the patient's problem. But at first, when you communicate with a physician, you need to just tell them what you need, you know, what what you're calling for. Yeah, like here's a little background on what's going on. What do you right. think about doing right. this? Yeah, I think it would be right. And I think they've come, uh, providers have really come to trust us a lot because we are at that bedside with the patient for the whole shift. Right. And so we are their eyes, their ears, their hands, right. you know, when they can't be there. And I think the, you know, the smarter you act on the phone, the, the more trusting they get with you. I think it's when you, when you go into a, a lot of unnecessary detail, you know, they don't want to hear how the family's reacting or, or, or something like that. The smarter you act and the more straightforward you act on the phone, the more that they'll, they'll trust you. Yeah. And I think that the way you're describing it is very, very much how it is in most intensive care units or most critical care units. Right. From my experience on more of a med search floor, sometimes they want to know all those other things. Right. That's true. Ask, you're right. Yeah. Me, I have like, worked, <laughs> I have worked med search before. Yeah. yeah. And they'll be like, but how's, how's the family doing? And you're like, really? You want to know that? And they do. Yeah. And I, I find that kind of refreshing when you find a doctor that, that is that, yeah. that invested. And I think it also depends on the size of hospital you're in. That's true. I've, I've pretty much only worked in the larger scale hospitals. Yeah. Patient care technologies, information systems, communication devices have changed a lot just in the last 10 years. What kinds of things are you seeing now as maybe emerging technology or? I think my favorite uh, advance in technology so far has been the chat. And I, I don't know what 
programs it's all on, but I know Cerner and Epic have the chat and it's where you uh, pick the patient and then it'll give you a list of doctors. And then you just choose the doctor that you're wanting to chat with and you can send them and it's like a text message. You can send them an instant chat and it's all private. You can get all your orders off of an instant chat and you have documentation of how the conversation went. So it saves that within the patient's chart, that communication. So the patient couldn't get that information if uh, they wanted it. It's all kept between the physician and okay. the staff. So when the ch patient checks out, they would never see that information. Granted, it's still kept at a professional tone. Uh, right. But I use that a lot uh, in New York, and I've used that a lot within Mercy. It's epic. It, is mm -hmm. the program that we're using but it's so quick and it's so handy and the physicians like it too because they just type out their answer and they just move on so um in some hospitals you'll use like what will look like an iphone um they're yeah. called something else and i can't remember what they're called and you can text physicians on those they are they are safe to use uh your patients will think you're using your cell phone in their room so you'll have to communicate that with them <laughs> but <laughs> A True. lot of hospitals have went to uh, the use of what looks like an iPhone, and they are iPhones. That's how you communicate with physicians, and those are nice, too, because, you know, everything in the phone is related to, to the hospital, so, you know, you can just type in your physician's name, and it'll come up, and you can just immediately call them. Now, I am finding that the older the physicians are, the less they'll allow that. So if you have an older physician, you are still going to page them. If you have a younger physician, then they like, they like you to use the iPhone. Yeah, they'd rather you just text. send the text. Because then yep. they'll see it when they can see it and get back with you on whatever they feel the urgency right. is. I also loved like with those iPhones, if a patient had a question about something or a med, you're in the room or a family member had that. You can just be like, let me look that up real quick <laughs> on my hospital device. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like you do feel like you have to kind of like justify it to the family. Like this isn't my phone. Well, that and when the family has a concern or the patient has a concern, if they see you stop what you're doing and text the physician in front of them, they know it's being addressed. Yeah. And they, they do appreciate that. Uh, because, you know, if you say, I'm going to go contact the doctor, they don't know if you actually did. Right. Where if you text them right at bedside, you know, you could even show them. Like, I, yeah, you know, I. Them if they're at bedside. If right. Yeah, I asked them for you. Yeah. Well, we're running kind of shorter on time than I thought we would. But I want to get to the last question. Because I think that it's so easy for you to remember back to when you very first started your career as a nurse. So what are three things you wish you would have known when you very first started your career? I think one of the things that stands out that's important, I think, for nurses to know is always be empathetic. I was always told as a critical care nurse that I would get used to people dying. And I always, went, I always wondered as a critical care nurse when that day was going to come. Yeah. Um, and I've always taken death kind of hard. And I always thought that made me a weak nurse. And, you know, I think, especially being in New York, I've, I've learned that I probably will never change that. 
Right. Death, death doesn't always have to get easy. Um, it's okay to be empathetic. I think another thing that I wish, you know, I wouldn't have picked up on was don't, don't listen to other nurses and report when they're talking poorly about either the patient or the family members. You know, sometimes when, when you come in to work, you know, a nurse will say, oh my gosh, they're a drug user and they only are here for drugs or, oh my gosh, their family is overreacting about everything. It turns out, and I learned this pretty early on, that if you listen to a patient's needs or you treat a person like they're human, mm -hmm. your shift is going to go so much easier than if you walk in under the presence of that other nurse that talks so poorly about them and you've already prejudged them, your shift's going to go really bad. And so you really determine the type of shift you're going to have by, you know, if, if you prejudge or not. Well, and I think and that I think, even turns around their stay. Right. Exactly. You can, yeah, and you will immediately become their favorite nurse if you just treat them as they're human instead of, you know, you're going to deal with all types of patients and they're not always going to be the best person, but you can become their favorite nurse by just treating them like they're human and we're yeah. all human. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think the third thing would be to take things serious. Don't get lax. Um, as soon as you get lax, something bad is going to happen. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not saying walk around like a robot all the time for sure, but just take it serious. I've had patients come back from cath lab and code the next few minutes on me. You know, every patient's going to be different. So you, you need to take their conditions serious. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes those patients coming back from the cath lab, they didn't even need intervention in there. And so you're thinking, well, this right. is not a sick person. And right. you let your guard down, you're like, oh no, they are sick. <laughs> yep. This yeah. They just coded. Yeah. Yeah. I do think you're right. My perspective is going to be a lot different because I've only ever really done critical care. I do think speaking to med surge nurses on this, you know, will be a lot different than just speaking to critical care nurses. No, and I think that's really good because a lot of students are very much like you were when you come out. It's like, I want to get in the middle of these critical care patients. And right. I mean, they just have that desire. They're, they're wired that way you know? And so right. I really think it takes different types of nurses to work in those different areas. And so, right. you know, a, a nurse that works critical care is going to have a different thought process than a, a nurse who's taking four or five patients on a med surge floor, you know? Right. It, it is just, that's just how it is, you know? But I right. really appreciate you taking the time to- Well, it's good to see you. You too. And talk through a little bit of your experience with New York and COVID, but especially looking at some of those communication pieces and how those have changed, you know, over your years of nursing. And I'm just, I'm anticipating what's going to change in the future. And hopefully it's just to make everything safer for our patients. Right. But any, anything else before we kind of wrap this up? I don't think so. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to the rest of your day. Okay. Well, it's <laughs> okay. good to see you. Talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really looking forward to next time when we get to talk to Maddie about her experience in the emergency room and the NICU. See you next time.